I don't know about you, but in high school, maybe parents at times told you you needed to get your priorities straight. Maybe, I don't know, it never happened to me, but priorities are, are oftentimes thought about as ordered value. And sometimes we think about it as kind of a one, two, three priority list. You might do that for the day. Here's my to-do list. And the things that are of top priority go at the top. I got to do these today. Throughout the week, here are the priorities. And we list them. Here's one, two, three, four, and then less important at the bottom. Priorities can be kind of ordered. One, two, three, four. But there's a different kind of priority than just order. There's the kind of priorities that saturate everything you do. The kind of priorities that form the very culture of a society or an organization or a church. Think about a sports team. Their priority is to win. That doesn't go on a checklist for the week. Okay, priority number one, we're going to win a championship this week. But that priority saturates everything they do on an individual level. The way an athlete eats, sleeps, trains, practices, the amount of film they watch is because they have a priority to win. The amount of practice the team does together, the amount of team building they do is to to form a, a, a unit that's about the same thing, to win. That priority saturates the whole organization, everything they do, everything they don't do. The Christian life, your life, the life of our church, has priorities. And not just a, what are we doing this week, one, two, three, four, but the kind of priorities that seep into the very DNA of who we are. And Paul, in this passage, will show us the priority of his life is the advancement of the gospel. And I'll argue today, as we read this passage, that we are, you and I, are to make make the advancing of the gospel the priority of our lives. So with that in mind, let's read Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So our our big idea today will be this. Make advancing the gospel the priority of your life. Make it the priority of this church to advance the gospel. We'll break our, our sermon into two points. Uh, verse, 14, or verse 12 to 14, the gospel advances through suffering. The gospel advances through suffering. And then second, verse 15 to 18, the first part of verse 18, 
The gospel advances through accurate gospel proclamation. It advances through suffering and advances through accurate gospel proclamation. Now, if you were here last week, we introduced the book. And we saw last week that Paul is writing to this church that he loves. And he expresses his thankfulness for them. They've partnered with him from day one. They've been about the gospel with him from the very beginning. And then he prayed that the Lord would work in them and cause them to grow in love. We saw that as we kind of squeeze out the sponge of that text last week, that it introduced us to one of the major themes of the book, and that is unity. Well, it's not an accident that those first 11 verses were dripping with the word all. All the saints. He's thankful for all of them. He's praying for all of them. This is a church that has begun to fracture. We'll, We'll look at different reasons as the book goes on, but he's trying to get them to see from the opening verse, I don't look at you as fractured. I look at you as one body in Christ. It's a book about unity. Well, this week, he knows that that they now know he loves them, but he also knows that they love him and they are concerned about him, so he's going to give them an update on how he is. They know he's in jail and they love him and they're like, how's Paul doing? We're worried about Paul. So here, verse 12 starts his, here's how I'm doing. So, verse 12 to 14, the gospel advances through suffering. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, so so I know you're worried, but let me give you an update. I want you to be aware of the situation, that what has happened to me, let's just stop there, fill in the blank, right? We're reading, we're like, well, what has happened to Paul? The answer, he's in jail. Look at verse 13. He says at the end of verse 13, my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 14, he tells them that they've become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Verse 17, he talks about some wanting to afflict him in his imprisonment. Paul's in jail. And the Philippians know he's in jail. And they're worried about him. We could put in there, Paul is suffering for the gospel. He's suffering. He's enchained because of his faith. He suffers. Now, before we we continue on, I think it's important we just stop and just use this as an opportunity to, to talk a little bit about suffering. See, the Christian life has never promised that become a Christian so you can become happy, healthy, and wise. Become a Christian, it's all going to be a bed of roses, it's easy, you'll never get sick, you'll never have financial problems, you'll never have relational issues, you'll never be hated because of your faith, so become a Christian. That's not the carrot that Christ dangles out. But oftentimes, people are sold, in the name of Jesus, a bill of false goods that come to Jesus and your life will be happy. And and it will all be wonderful. And people get frustrated. They feel duped when they become a Christian and they're like, it actually has gotten harder. So I think it's important that we, we lay some groundwork here because this book, as much as he talks about joy, underwriting it is a man who's suffering. So when suffering, not not if, but when suffering comes to your life, how will we be equipped to deal with it? Well, first, I think we need to understand that it is to be expected. It's not an if, but it's a when. Paul talks about in the book of 2 Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
Jesus said, they have hated me. And if you preach me and live for me, they'll hate you. Not might, they will hate you. Christians, we we have to first go into this knowing the Christian life will not be exempt from suffering. Secondly, we have to have a theology that will uphold us in the midst of our suffering. We have to have a right view of who God is. Paul is pushed on not because of his circumstances, but in spite of his circumstances, because he's reminding himself of who God is in the midst of his suffering. So that's why, you know, even in our Sunday school class, we have a, here are the attributes of God, so that when trials come, it's not, here's what my eyes can see, here's what my emotions tell me, but in spite of those things, here's who God is in the midst of the hardship. We need a view of God that he's in control, and he's good, and he's wise, and he's moving all things for his purpose. That doesn't mean that things aren't painful. That doesn't mean we can't lament and say, how long, O Lord? But in the midst of the lamenting, we remind ourselves he's good, he's wise, he's in control, and that can help push us along. We need to expect suffering will come. We need a theology that can hold us up. Secondly, or thirdly, we need a healthy community around us. You cannot suffer alone. Paul's got people visiting him in jail. He's going to write about that in chapter 2 where he's like, you know when I'm in jail and the Philippians sent somebody to encourage me? That pushed me along. Paul, in the midst of his suffering, is not like, you know what, it's just me and Jesus and I got it all figured out. I don't need any of you guys. He writes to commend, you've sent people to walk with me in my suffering. Job, I love the end of Job chapter 2 where his friends just sit there. Right? They're there. They start talking, that's the problem, but, but they're there. He's not alone. So we need to, first, we need to expect it. Paul is a man who knows, I'm going I'm to live for Christ, and I'm going to expect suffering will come. Paul's a man who, in the midst of his suffering, is constantly reminding himself and others of who God is. An unchanging God for changing circumstances. An unchanging God for difficult trials. Thirdly, Paul's a man who knows his need for the church and the church's need for him in the midst of suffering. There's a lot more to say, but I think those are some pillars that we need to rest on to prepare for whatever kind of various trials the Lord will bring. Now, back to the text. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, we could just put in parentheses, suffering in jail, And then the rest of the verse is very counterintuitive, very unexpected, right? You expect to read on human, normal circumstances, I'm in jail and life stinks, right? I'm in jail and, hey, I know I'm probably like one of the best evangelists out there, so the gospel stopped advancing. The best player on the team is out for the year, season's over, it's on pause. That's what we'd expect, right? The Apostle Paul's chained up. So who's doing any evangelism? And, 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 and well, he's off, he's off the field. He's on the bench. That's not what we read. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Shocker. Paul's in jail, and like he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9, I am bound, but the gospel is not bound. I'm in chains, but the gospel is free. 
I am suffering, but the gospel is spreading. That's what he's saying. In the midst of his suffering, the gospel has done the opposite of what we would expect. The Lord has put him there, and the gospel is advancing. Now, today is going to be a lot of kind of foundation laying for later on. He uses the phrase, the gospel. And he's going to use the phrase, the gospel, all over the book of Philippians. And I don't think it would be wise to assume that we're all on the same page as to what the gospel is. So we should spend some time here just saying, what is the gospel? Paul tells us the gospel advances. Our main point today is we should be about the priority about advancing the gospel. So what is it? What is the gospel? There are many good ways to lay out the gospel. I'm going to give you a way to kind of lay it out that I just helpfully have in my mind when I'm sharing the gospel, God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. So let's fill those in. The gospel begins with God. You see, we have to start out by understanding that there is a creator and you are not him. There is a God who is in control of all things, and that's not you or me. We start out by saying there is one who made us and therefore one who has authority over our lives to tell us what to do and not to do, what to think and not to think, what to say and not to say. God has created all things, including you, therefore he has authority. And that God is perfect, holy, righteous. And he says to be in relationship with him you must be perfect as I am perfect. That's what the book of Matthew says. You, the book of Leviticus, you must be holy as I am holy. The standard to be in relationship with God is perfection. So God, he's the creator, he has authority, and his standard is to be holy as he is holy. Humanity or man, mankind. Well, we aim for that standard, and guess what we do? We fall far short. That's called sin. We're created in God's image with inherent dignity and worth. And we try and we fail. We fall short of that perfection, that holiness. That's called sin. Mankind is fallen. Mankind is sinful. And that's not just some abstract thing that's like, oop, made some mistakes. I guess we just move on. God, as a good judge, must punish law-breaking. So when we talk about humanity, we, we're saying we're fallen and deserve divine judgment. Every person in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and because of that deserves eternal damnation. Now the word gospel means good news and if you're, you're kind of new here, you're like, well, this is not good. This is pretty depressing. You're telling me there's a God who says i got to be perfect. I'm not perfect and you're going to judge me. God, man, good news. The third thing, Christ. God sent his son into the world to live a perfect, sinless life. He loved the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself all of his life. And that innocent, sinless one went to a cross where he took all of your guilt, all of your sin, all of the judgment you and I deserve upon his body, and he died in your place. He gave up his lifeblood for your forgiveness. 
And he didn't just die. He rose from the grave, conquering death, conquering sin, destroying Satan, overcoming the world. God, who's perfect, holy, has authority, says, be holy as I am holy. We, humanity, mankind, fall short of that standard, deserves divine judgment, but God in His infinite love and mercy sends Christ to bear our sins, to take the wrath, to take the death, and to rise and conquer. Number four is response. That announcement that your sins can be forgiven only in Jesus demands that we respond. So what's the response of the gospel? Well, what it is not is go be a better person. Go try harder to be more moral. Clean your life up so God will forgive you. There's nothing you or I could ever do because it will all be tainted by our sin. It will never be good enough. The response is to repent and believe. To turn. So repentance is, I have my back to God. I'm running after my sin. And repentance is, I turn from that. I'm turning my back and saying, God, you're right. That's all wrong. And I'm guilty of that. And that's what we turn from. Faith is what we turn to. Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I need mercy. And the only hope I have is that you sent your son Jesus and I'm trusting that he and he alone can forgive me. And the Bible tells us when we respond by repentant faith alone in Christ alone, the Father says forgiven. The Father says, you're no longer an enemy, you're a son, you're a daughter. Your sins are wiped away, never to be brought up again. All the shame you feel is removed and you are now in right standing with me. I don't see you through that lens anymore. God, man, Christ, response. That's the gospel that Paul talks about. And Paul is saying, my life's priority is such that whether I'm in jail or I'm out, I'm about advancing that message, making that known to people. He advances the gospel. Verse 13. The gospel will advance among unbelievers. Look at verse 13. It's advancing because he's in jail so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So there's different kind of jail in this time period. When Paul's in jail in Acts 16 in Philippi, he's beaten and he's put in like a dungeon. Really not good. There's a different kind of jail where you're awaiting trial. Likely, Paul's writing from Rome, and he is in, like, house arrest. And when this happens, likely, again, we don't know for, for a fact, but likely he's chained to an imperial guard. And that imperial guard is chained to Paul. And Paul's like, oh, I'm on the sideline. I'm in jail. Can't do anything. No, he's like, there's literally a person chained to me. <laughs> Guess what I get to do? And they're like, why are you here? Jesus. Who? Oh, you don't know about Jesus? Let me tell you, he, he's God who's come to earth to save sinners like you if you repent and believe. And that guard changes shift, and another guy is shackled to him. And Why are you here? Jesus. Who's Jesus? Oh, you don't know about Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus. And then they go on their way, and they're like, that guy's in here because of some guy named Jesus. Who's, he says, rose from the grave. And he's like, the gospel spreading. I'm suffering. I'm going through hardship. Paul's not like, it's so wonderful, I'm in jail, it's so happy. But he's like, in spite of the suffering, the gospel is advancing. The Lord is opening doors 
to people that I never would have talked to. The gospel gets to spread to the imperial guard. Think about the book of Acts. Paul's in jail a lot of the book of Acts. But you know what that opens up the door for? Officials, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, where he has to stand and they say, what are you here for? Jesus rose from the grave. I hated him. I didn't think it was real. I was about killing Christians. And then I saw him. He knocked me off my horse. And he said, you're mine. I believed, was forgiven, and I want people to know. Because of his suffering, the gospel was advancing to places that it would not had he not been in jail. What about us? Our stand for Christ may get us in trouble. Now, I'm not saying let's be foolish about it and just stand up on your cubicle at work and start, hear ye, hear ye, everybody stop work. I'm a Christian, you better listen. But what about in interactions over lunch? They see you praying. Why do you pray? Well, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? And you tell them, and they get mad at you, and they tell your boss, and you're like, well, I get to talk to my boss about Jesus. The, the, the gospel, even though we may be persecuted, can open up doors to places that we would not expect if it's our priority, if it's what we're about. Not a, today I'm going to advance the gospel, but in all that I do, it saturates all that I am. All that I do, I take it with me to work. I take it with me when I talk about my, to my neighbors. I, I take it with me to the family Thanksgiving gathering where everybody's not a Christian and thinks I'm nuts. We take it because it's our priority. The gospel spreads wherever we go because that's what we take with us and that's what, what we are. We're gospel people. The gospel spreads amongst unbelievers through suffering. But do you read verse 14? It doesn't just do a work in the unbeliever. It doesn't just do a work amongst the world. The same event, his suffering, does a work in the church. Do you see that? The gospel can advance amongst unbelievers, people who don't hear about Jesus now hear about Jesus, but it can also advance in the church by strengthening the church. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, we could say brothers and sisters, most of the Christians, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The gospel, through Paul's suffering, advances in the church. Such that when he hears people talking about what's going on in the church, he's like, people hear about my imprisonment, and they say, oh, Paul's suffering, but the gospel's advancing. Paul was bold. Lord, we should be about the same thing, and it emboldens them. So it's not just working one way to unbelievers. It's working in many ways. Believers are hearing about Paul's suffering, and they are strengthened. Notice where they're not confident in. Paul. Growing in confidence in me, they're more bold. Notice where else they're not confident in? Themselves. Well, you know, we, we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get more bold and more courageous, and, and I'm going to be more courageous tomorrow. And that works for like a day or an hour or a couple of minutes, and then we're like, that was too much. Their confidence is in the Lord. Their confidence is in God's power, in God's wisdom, in God's plan and purpose. They're confident there. Becoming more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. The suffering Paul is enduring 
is not only working in him, not only working in the unbeliever, but God is using his suffering to strengthen God's people. Have you ever heard of a man named Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott went down to Ecuador with four other men, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, and I forget the other people's names. They die. All five of them die before they can even open their mouths and talk to these people in Ecuador. They get killed. Now, they have guns, but they believe they were more prepared to meet God than those people were prepared to meet God, so they didn't shoot. They'd rather die than kill an unbeliever. Now, his wife and a team went down, and that village got reached for the gospel. But what happened through news of their martyrdom was it sparked a worldwide missions movement like we haven't seen in a long time. Through their suffering, God not only advanced the gospel to those Ecuadorians, but he advanced the gospel all over the world because people were like, oh, this is real. People are willing to die for this. Like, this gospel is real. And we as Christians are about taking it to the God. It was a wake-up call to the church. That's what's happening here is like, oh, yeah, this is important. Paul's willing to go to jail for this. It, maybe we should be about sharing it too. Now, to be fair to these believers, they're likely under Nero in Rome who impales Christians and lights the streets of Rome with them. So like, it's not like they don't have cause to be timid. But through Paul's suffering, he strengthens the church to be more on mission. I love the word bold. Maybe I've said this here before, but I grew up, became a Christian in a church where it was you know, an older style Scream and yell. Guy's face would turn purple, blue, different colors. And I was like, that's boldness, right? The louder you get and the more offensive you say things, that's boldness. He's bold. That's not what this word means at all. This isn't like get out there and just say as many edgy things that can make people mad in the name of boldness. This, is, this word literally means you speak the truth. You hold nothing back. You're just saying the truth. There's going to be things about the gospel that we just said that are going to offend people. You are a sinner is not exactly fall on people's ears as like, oh, that's a wonderful sound in my ears. Jesus being the only means of salvation is not exactly happy news to a world that says you can believe whatever you want. The idea of hell is not exactly comforting. Boldness is that we speak the truth, period. Not that we be offensive, not that we have a certain level of volume. It's that we speak the truth. The believers, because of Paul's imprisonment, are emboldened to speak the word. The gospel has advanced through suffering. The gospel is spreading, not in spite of, but because of Paul's sufferings. It's advancing amongst unbelievers who would never have heard, and it's advancing in the church by strengthening the believer. Number two, verses 15 to 18 the gospel advances through right or accurate proclamation. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to afflict me in my imprisonment. He starts out by giving us two categories. There's people who preach for the right reason and wrong reason. 
There's people, you see the word from in verse 15 and the word out of in verse 16? Those have the idea of motive. There's some people who are preaching Christ with wrong motives. Why are they preaching it? From envy. That word means more than just kind of a jealousy. It has the idea of intending to inflict harm. Rivalry could be translated factionalism. Skip down to verse 17. Some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. That word literally means ladder climbing. They're trying to up the ladder. What is happening likely here, there's debate, but likely what's happening here is there are people who don't like Paul in the church. Imagine that. People in the church not liking people in the church. Some, Paul may have come in and said things that are offensive to them or pushed on some of their idols or, or done things in a manner that they just didn't like and they are not about Paul. Right? You go to the Corinthian church and there's some of Paul, some of Peter, some of John. Right? These probably are not team Paul. And they see him in jail and they see the way to kind of up the ladder in the church is to be about evangelism. So we're going to evangelize more so that people see us as spiritual, so that we get more prominence in the church. That's one motive. And Paul says that's not a good motive. Now before we kind of glare at this motive and say, what a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners, all of us do things with mixed motives. All of us. Oh, hey, we're having a testimony time for evangelism opportunities. I need to share so I can get up there. and We do things out of mixed motives. Oh, the church down there is growing. Yes, we should evangelize so our church can grow. That's not a good motive. All of us do things with mixed motives. All of us. What the good news is here, which we'll get to in a moment, is in spite of the motives, the gospel itself is powerful. Which we'll get there in a moment. But there are some people who preach for right motives. Verse 15. Others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. The love is undefined. It's love for the Lord. It's Love for the unbeliever. It could even be love for Paul. He'll be encouraged to hear the gospel spreading, so let's spread so he's encouraged. They're doing it for the right reason. So then, what is his, what is his conclusion? Verse 18. Some people do it out for the wrong reasons. Some people do it for the right reasons. And Paul's conclusion in verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense, that's the, that's the selfish ambition, envy, rivalry, that's the bad motive. Whether in pretense or in truth, the, the good reason, love. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul, Paul looks out and he's like, the gospel's advancing. People might do it for the wrong reasons, but the gospel's advancing. People are sharing Christ, sometimes for the wrong reason, but they're sharing Christ. And he's like, in that I rejoice. Now, two things he's not saying. Number one, motives don't matter. There's a lot of other verses in the Bible than this paragraph. And some of those verses deal with our motives and doing things for the right reasons, for the glory of God, for the love of the lost, right? Their motives matter. What Paul is doing is saying, at the end of the day, when I look out from my jail cell, when I look out from my being chained to this guy, and I see that there are Christians talking about Jesus, I'm happy. It, it causes joy. It causes joy. Why? Because Paul knows that it's the gospel, not the proclaimer, that does the saving. The Lord can use the true gospel being preached from an impure motive to save sinners. And Paul knows that, and he's like, 
I can rejoice. I can rejoice. It, it doesn't say the gospel plus your motives, the gospel plus your behavior is the power of God unto salvation. Motives matter. Our living commends the gospel. Yes, yes, yes. But the gospel itself is where the power of God is. So number one, he's not saying motives don't matter. What he is saying is if the gospel is rightly proclaimed, the Lord uses it. That's good news, right? Because I'm just telling you, all of us, myself included, will preach the gospel truly for wrong reasons. And it's just comforting to know that the Lord can use people with mixed motives for the furtherance of his gospel. The second thing he is not saying is that he rejoices anytime somebody just says Jesus. He doesn't correct the gospel proclamation. He doesn't say, some are preaching a false Christ, and in that I rejoice. He is assuming that the right preaching of Christ is happening. There, there are books, Galatians, where it's like people are saying Jesus is the Son of God who came to die for sinners, who rose from the grave, and you need to believe in him. But then they add works to it, and he's like, they are cursed. So he's not just saying, as long as people are out there just saying Jesus, I rejoice. He, he's assuming the gospel is being accurately, rightly preached, just for wrong reasons. So, so he's, in a sense, taking the person that's like, eh, it doesn't matter as long as you say Jesus, and he's like, no, 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 I'm saying the right preaching of Jesus. But then to the people that are like, let me just be grumpy about everybody who disagrees with every minute point of doctrine, they're not preaching Christ. He's like, no, 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 no. The right preaching of the gospel is what's central. The preaching of Christ is what's central. The gospel, God, man, Christ responds, is central. People can disagree about secondary things. People can do it for the wrong reasons. But if it's being preached, Paul says, I have enough to be joyful. Not that we can't talk about those secondary things. Not that we shouldn't correct those things. But let's just cut through all the grumpiness and say, Jesus is being proclaimed. Let's rejoice in that. Paul is doing that. So he's saying his priority is the gospel advancing. It advances through suffering. And he's like, if, it, if the gospel is rightly preached, praise God. So one thing I just want to mine out by way of application today is that the gospel must be preached. I don't know how else to say it other than as bluntly as I can. This idea that just preach the gospel and if necessary use words is a bunch of garbage. That is so unbiblical. Should you live in a way that commends the gospel? Does your living commend the gospel? Yes. But there's no such thing as evangelism apart from gospel proclamation. Just look at the text. Verse 13. Look at the words he uses. Verse 13. It has become known. Verse 4. Having become more confident in the Lord, much more bold to what? Speak the word. Verse 15, some preach Christ. Verse 16, he's defending the gospel. That means he's talking about it. Verse 17, some proclaim Christ. Verse 18, some proclaim Christ. The gospel, whether it's in written form or through our mouths verbally, has to be made known. Just smiling at people at work is a good thing. That's not evangelism. Raking other people's leaves is an act of kindness that Christians should do. 
That's not evangelism. Making Jesus known, whether through tracts, written form, handing people Bibles, or talking to them about Jesus is the priority of the Christian life. That has to be done. The gospel has to be made known for people to believe it. That's what Romans 10 is all about. There's people who don't believe in Jesus. How will they believe unless someone what? Preaches. Now, preaching doesn't mean just get up here and and wax eloquently. Talk about Jesus. Proclaim, herald the gospel. Maybe you sit here and you say, but I'm not gifted in that. Join the club. I'm not either. There are people in the church that are gifted in evangelism, in sharing the gospel. But the responsibility of sharing the gospel is not for the gifted. It's for Christians, all of us. And that might go through different means. Some people are going to be like, I love to just talk to strangers on the bus, on the street, and I'll just talk to anybody about Jesus. And some people are like, that terrifies me, and I think you're a little weird for liking to walk up to strangers. And either way, we rejoice that Christ is preached. Some people are going to be like, I love one-on-one relationships, and I want to go deep with one person, and over time begin to explain the gospel. Praise the Lord. Some people are going to say, well, I, I would like to go do things where I get involved in people's lives. Some of the, the, the opportunities we laid out in our member meeting of, of, of going down and tutoring or going and doing one-on-one with the pregnancy center or going to the, the nursing. I like those things, and I'll bring the gospel in there. Praise the Lord. doesn't have to look the same. We're not talking about uniformity, but all of us, all of all of us are responsible to make, making Christ known the priority. Some people are going to be like, I just want to talk to my coworker over lunch and just build that relationship. And some people are going to say, well, I'd like to do a block party in my neighborhood. It doesn't matter how it gets out. Different people have different giftings and different leanings and propensities. And our job is not to say, well, you're not doing it like I do it, so you do it wrong, and you're not. No, we rejoice that Christ is preached. We're all different. We're all wired differently, and it'll get out in different ways. The key thing is that the gospel is getting out. That's Paul's priority. Is that your priority? Is that my priority? Again, back to the beginning, not the list. Today, number one, make the gospel known. Number two, brush my teeth. No, it's the kind that saturates who you are. It's the kind that is the DNA of who we are. We're gospel proclaimers. We're gospel people. We make it known. We make it known. We make it known. And all that we are and all that we do, we advance the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence. The task that you have given us, the priority that you have for us to make the gospel advance is something that we naturally cannot do, that we naturally are not about. But we need your spirit to change us, to give us your priorities, to give us boldness, to give us confidence in the gospel. Would you help us to make Christ known, whether through suffering or not? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.